Welcome to the Actionable Futurist podcast, a show all about the near-term future with practical and actionable advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and actionable futurist, Andrew Grill. Today's guest is Chris Waiting, Chief Executive Officer of The Conversation, a global resource that works with academics to deliver truthful stories that anyone can read and understand. Chris previously held senior management positions at the BBC and more recently at the Associated Press. He holds an MA from the University of Cambridge and an MBA from the London Business School. Welcome, Chris. Great to be here. Fantastic to have you on the show today. You say that the conversation is all about democratising knowledge. How would you explain what you do to our listeners that may not have heard of you yet? The Conversation is a news publisher. We publish at theconversation.com. And any of your listeners would come to that. And in many ways, we look like any other news publisher. But we're actually unusual in a number of ways. The most obvious one, if you read any of the stories on the site, is all of them have been written by academics. You don't see the byline of journalists. You will see Professor so-and-so of Cambridge, uh, and they are writing about their research. And so these are expert voices grounded in evidence, but writing not like academic publishing for a specialist audience, but in a way that is easy to understand for anyone who is interested in in learning more. The second thing that is unusual about us is we give all of the content away for free. There is no advertising on site. There's no paywall. And indeed, people can republish the stories for free. It's all published under a Creative Commons license. And why do we do that? It comes back to the third unusual thing about the conversation, which is that we're actually a charity. And that's tied to this mission of democratizing knowledge. We exist to take the research, the knowledge, the expertise that can be locked away inside the ivory towers of academic institutions and make it available for anyone to understand. And so that's why we give it away for free. That's why we let people republish it for free, because fundamental to us as an organization is making that information available to anyone. I know that the conversation started in my home country, Australia. There's a fascinating story about the whole purpose behind your founder's launch in Oz. You might talk about how the conversation started back in Australia and then how it grew and how it now came to be in the UK. The conversation was founded by a chap called Andrew Jaspin in in Melbourne. They launched in 2011. Andrew was someone who had worked in the news industry for many, many years, had founded publications, edited publications, and he was concerned that many news publishers were struggling to remain sustainable with circulation declining, cannibalism from other media. That was particularly manifesting itself in a loss of expertise, that once upon a time you'd go into a newsroom and there would be the science desk, the health desk, the politics desk, and increasingly you would go in and you would have more junior reporters being expected to cover all of these ranges of subjects. And inevitably, they were rushing around trying to do the best job they could, but they didn't have that deep knowledge. They didn't have a network of sources. They didn't have the personal understanding to put things in context. And at the time, Andrew was working uh, on the campus at the University of Melbourne, and he looked around the university and saw kind of an analogue to the way that a newsroom works, that you have 
the geography department, the uh, health area, you have schools of medicine, of material science, of nuclear research. And he thought, well, is there a way that we can take all of that knowledge but make it available to the public in the way that a newspaper would? He talked to a number of academics and said, why aren't you communicating more with the public? And a lot of them said, well, I, I don't really trust journalists. That I talk to them about my research and they say, okay, and then they go away and write up a story and they get it wrong. They make it sound like I've discovered the cure for cancer when in fact I've discovered something important and useful, but it's not as definitive of that. Or they just mis- misrepresent my work. That hurts my reputation amongst my colleagues. And the academics said, well, what I really need is to, rather than sit across a desk from a journalist being interviewed by them and they then go away and write the story, I'd rather be sitting on the same side of the desk as the journalist and we share the keyboard and we write the story together. And ultimately, that is what the conversation is. I say we don't have any journalist names on the site. We do employ journalists. We have about 120 around the world. And their job is to find, commission, and edit the stories that you read on the site, uh, working with the academics to make sure that they are using accessible language, short sentences, avoiding technical terms. And so it is that partnership that is at the heart of the way that we work. As I say, launched in Australia in 2011, came to the UK two years later in 2013, and we now operate eight editions around the world uh, and hopefully some more in the coming uh, coming years. I just want to drill down a bit on the attribution uh, model because that's really interesting. The only other publication that doesn't have bylines from journalists is The Economist. They famously don't say who's written it. I'm just wondering how the journalists feel not getting the credit for something they've helped write. It's a really good question and something I, I talk to our editors about quite frequently, that they are brilliantly talented journalists. They really know their stuff. And I sometimes share that concern. I think, you know, Shouldn't we be putting them a bit more front and centre? And obviously all their names are on the site, you can you can find them, but on an individual story basis, you don't get to see that this piece was commissioned and edited by, by so-and-so. Partly, I think the kind of journalists who choose to come and work for us are the ones that are not necessarily looking to grow their own brand. They are people who really believe in our mission and... We want to make it clear that ultimately what we are publishing is the words of the academics themselves. So they get the final sign-off on a story and theirs is the byline on it. But I would like to do a little bit more to to raise the profile of, of of our really talented editors. And some of the things we've been experimenting with over the last couple of years during the pandemic, launching a new weekly podcast, producing webinars, where we have those hosted by editors, but with contributors from from our universities. That has allowed uh, Gemma Ware, Dan Marino on the podcast, for example, to grow their profile. And so I would like to see us do a bit more of that. When I came across what you're doing, I was amazed that I hadn't heard about you before. Are there any other organisations doing anything similar? I think that... The core conversations model is pretty unique, that the uh, commissioning from academics across a really broad range of news uh, and giving it to the public for free isn't something you will find anywhere else. As we've been through the pandemic, there have been an increased number of 
academic experts sought out by the mainstream media to talk and explain about their work, uh, particularly in the health epidemiology type subjects. Um, And of course, you do have in certain areas, organisations like the Science Media Centre, for example, which will seek to connect journalists with academics. But there's really nowhere else that lets them write in their own words directly for the public quite like we do. I've often mused that academics are great at gathering data and information, but not as confident at delivering it in a way that makes it easy to understand. So is this where the conversation really comes into its own? It's not to say that there aren't academics who aren't brilliant communicators, but the skills necessary to be a, a great academic, uh, the way that their performance is measured is often through uh, journals and writing for very specialist audiences. They're not trained to communicate with the general public. But increasingly, they are being asked to do that. That When I go to universities and I talk to early career researchers who recognise that their career is going to take them between institutions, they're really hungry to do more of this kind of work. Uh, And so we, in addition to the Commission of Stories, we also provide training to academics as well, because they have so much knowledge, so much insight but often there's such a huge volume, they need help focusing that. They need help identifying what the, the key message or the, the lead of a story would be. The theme of this episode is really the future of journalism in the age of misinformation. And right now there's the uh, crisis happening in Ukraine. We've gone through the era of fake news. Are we going to continue to see more of this fake news? And how do we restore trust in the information that we're actually reading? I think we are going to see a a continued uh, volume of fake news. Obviously, that term has has become quite politically charged. But there are many actors who maliciously use fake news misinformation to try and shape the news agenda in a a way that is favourable to them, as well as direct um, political actors in in their own right. And a lot of the way that people get news these days is susceptible to the kind of tactics, the um, the newsiness, uh, to, to use a, a Stephen Colbert phrase of a news story, uh, that people like to share it. They want the feeling of being the first to tell all their friends about something that's just happened, plays into an idea that people aren't necessarily checking their sources. They don't know when they retweet something, well, actually, where does that information come from? I'm glad that the platforms are are wrestling more with that. And every news organisation is investing in how they can combat misinformation. But it's a, it is a challenge that the uh, the old maxim of uh, you know a lie is halfway around the world before the truth has its shoes on uh, is uh, is very very true. So I'm sure you're not immune to uh, misinformation. Uh, how do you fact check what you're being told by the academics? That is also a great question. So the first thing is we make sure people are writing about something they know about. We are not just a website where academics write opinion pieces. The only people who can write for us are academics writing about their area of research. Indeed, we occasionally get grumbles from institutions where they say, the vice chancellor would like to write about Brexit. And we say, but he's a geographer. And so we have to make sure that the person writing is the right person to write the story. We also want to make sure that 
because everything is freely available, we can link through to the research that's behind it so that if you read a story and you think, oh, that's really interesting, I would like to know more about that. Maybe it's a subject where you do have a bit more expertise. You can click through, particularly if it's an open access journal, you can click through and read the academic paper behind our story and so that people can can see those things. Again, our editors are subject experts. They they know their patch and so they will often push back on academics who are straying outside their field. They'll read the, the journal articles themselves and, and make sure that things aren't being misrepresented. So there's an element of, of peer review. Uh, if we are covering a topic where there are a variety of views, we may well commission academics who have different ways of explaining the same phenomena or have different perspectives on a, on a news story. Ultimately, we also need to be accountable to our readers, and so we will issue corrections and change things if a story evolves or changes and the way that it was originally published is no longer accurate. So it's clear from your model and approach that you're not competing directly with news organisations. So who are the media organisations that you publish and partner with? In some ways, we are competing with news organisations. We are fighting for eyeballs and attention. But again, because of this Creative Commons model, we also want our information to to go out to wherever our readers are. As we said at the start, the conversation is in a household name. And I recognise that there are certain people, hopefully amongst your audience, who, when I say, would you like to hear about new stories written by academics, say, yes, I'd love that. But I know there are other people for whom that might be a bit of a turnoff. And so it's important our New stories can actually go out and find those audiences wherever they are. Our stories are republished everywhere from The Sun and The Mail to The Guardian, The Independent in the UK, The Washington Post, The New York Times, Le Monde, uh, ABC in Australia, genuinely all over the world. That can be ad hoc. Oh, that's a great story. That would work for our readers. Others will use more and more uh, content. They'll take a feed. Our feeds are taken by some of the biggest news agencies in the world, the Associated Press in the US, the Press Association the Reuters, and Reuters in the UK. Uh, we work with uh, AFP in France, Press Trust of India, and the Australian Associated Press in, uh, in Australia. So that is, again, about making our content available to anyone. One of the things I'm really proud that we've done in the UK is make our content available through Reach, uh, the organisation that used to be Trinity Mirror, the largest publisher of local newspapers in the UK. And that means that if you are the editor of the the Stoke Sentinel, a reach title, you can say, actually, yeah, I'd like to publish a story from an academic at Keele, which is a university just down the road from them. But if it wasn't for the conversation, they might never realise that there is a really interesting story that their readers might really connect with just 10 minutes down the road. So since the conversation has launched, how have you seen the impact of social media networks influence the average citizen to understand what is fact versus fiction? Social media has clearly become the primary way many people are finding their news. It's an important driver of traffic for us. It's an important driver of traffic for for many, many news organisations. And there are both malicious actors and people who inadvertently will share misinformation. It increased the speed at which misinformation can spread, but it also allows our content to reach new people. That uh, one of the things I think has been really interesting is the value of replies, that a lot of social media is a discussion and as an organisation called The Conversation. We can't expect to just say, here's our story, come and find it. We need to go out there and 
place it uh, and indeed respond to people who who may find it useful, saying, actually, you're talking about this. Are you aware? We published this story recently where the person who did the research behind that wrote about why it's important. What's the most unusual story you've covered in the conversation? We cover a huge range of subjects, everything from up-to-the-minute political stories through to new discoveries in astrophysics and in biology and genetics and so on. One of the stories that really resonated with readers we published a couple of years ago was looking at the way that people suffering from depression use language and how looking at the language people use you're able to diagnose depression earlier. And that is a was a, a piece of research published in a journal that might not necessarily have reached very many people. But on site, I think it's one of our top five most read stories of all time. And it's, it's very interesting because it touches on psychology, it touches on mental health, it touches on linguistics. So it's bringing together a, a number of different academic disciplines in a way that people might not have encountered before. And what's a story in the conversation that you're most proud of? I think the story I've been most proud of was something we published at the end of uh, 2019 uh, as part of our Insights strand, which is uh, longer reads. Most stories are about 700, 800 words, and these ones are about 3,000, and allow us to really get into a topic in, in more depth. And it was written by an academic at the University of Birmingham who had been looking at the the conduct of UN peacekeepers in Haiti and how... As they withdrew, they left behind many children that they had fathered, uh, abandoned, unsupported. And again, this was a piece of academic research that was published in a, in a journal with, where most papers are read a few hundred times. And we thought that this was a, a very significant story. We turned it into, say, one of these insight pieces and published it uh, in partnership with The Times. The Times ran it on their front page and talked about it in their leader column. And the story went global. Uh, it was covered in The New York Times and led to the UN issuing a formal response and subsequently an inquiry that the academic who wrote for us contributed to and ultimately changing the way that they monitor behaviour of their peacekeepers. Uh, so it, it had a real impact in the real world, uh, which is something I'm enormously proud of, and of the, the team, Paul and Josephine, who identified that story months before it was due to be published and thought that's something that deserves to, to go to a, a wider audience. Now, you're a digital platform, so you have oodles of data that's flowing around. So how does data influence what stories you cover? It's a really good question. Compared to some news organisations, I think we're a little bit data light. We use Google Analytics. We use a uh, little tracking pixel. So when other news organizations republish our story, we can see uh, when it's been read, how many times where it's been republished. Data is, is an invaluable tool in the newsroom. We would never want to be in a position where data tells us what we should commission, but it informs editors' judgments. We're currently involved in a project that is trying to define our audiences a bit more specifically than when the conversation launched, we originally talked about just taking knowledge to the general public, which is great as a broad aim, 
But actually, from a from a strategic perspective, we need to be a bit more precise. Are we trying to reach UK uh, professionals? Are we trying to reach uh, those involved in developing policy? Are we trying to speak to young people, trying to decide if they want to go to university, and if so, what they want to study? And so the data is really helpful for helping us understand who's reading what story. Uh, and the question we're currently uh, exploring is what user need is that story addressing? So this is some work that uh, a chap called uh, Dmitry Shishkin, uh, formerly of the World Service, developed. And it's really thinking about why should someone read this story? What does it give them? Uh, does it help inform their day? Does it help them pass the time? It's a, a range of different things. But trying to understand those questions is, is really important so that what we publish is distinctive. There's no one else like us, but as I said earlier on, we are competing for attention with many, many other news publishers and indeed YouTube, Spotify. And so we've got to make sure the stories really connect with readers and give them something they wouldn't find anywhere else. I've heard you talk about the COVID-19 infodemic. What were you seeing then and how has it changed over the last two years? The pandemic was clearly an unprecedented moment in so many industries I think every news organization saw their traffic spike. Before the pandemic, we were seeing about 40 to 50 million reads a month. And overnight, our traffic doubled. In March 2020, our stories were read 104 million times. The people were so hungry for information, hungry to explain what was going on. How scared do I need to be? What do I need to do to keep my family safe? What, what does it mean? How do you model a pandemic? And lots of news organisations saw that traffic spike. Uh, lots of organisations responded to that with a lot more content. And inevitably, that does mean for readers, it can be a bit overwhelming. There's so much COVID content that they aren't necessarily sure which should they read first, which is more trustworthy than any other. How can they piece all of those things together? We also, about six months into the pandemic, saw a bit of pandemic fatigue come about with pe people who were fed up of reading COVID stories. And so you start publishing publishing fewer of those. But it is a real challenge in, in cutting through. It's why I talk about it being so important that we are distinctive in what we do, because when there is this tidal wave of information, some trustworthy, some less so, making sure that people are able to find uh, what we do and find why what we do is special and different from any other news story they might read. So how's the way you dealt with the misinformation during the pandemic influence how you cover the current crisis in Ukraine? Partly it has been speeding things up. The pandemic meant that we, we had to respond to things much, much faster there's something that academics would talk about, something called preprints, that normally the way that information, that the academic knowledge is uh, made available, that work is done, it is at a preprint stage, it is sent to a number of reviewers who give comments and peer review it. And once it has gone through that process, it is then published in a journal. And that process can take many, many months which under normal circumstances is fine. But when things were moving as fast as they did in the pandemic, we obviously needed to be dealing with stories when they were at that preprint stage. But at the same time, you want to say, this story hasn't yet been peer-reviewed. 
That doesn't mean it is less accurate, but it does mean it hasn't gone through this, this sort of gate. The same is true now, that we're not dealing with cutting-edge uh, medical research. We're not dealing about vaccine uh, efficacy, but we are dealing with misinformation, people talking about uh, missile strikes. We're talking about the politics of Ukraine and the different uh, political actors in that space. And we need to respond to those questions that people have very rapidly and with appropriate context and recognising that things can evolve. A well-sourced story that we published in March 2020 might well have been out of date two months later. That doesn't mean it was wrong when we published it. It was based on the best available information then, but that has been superseded by better knowledge. And in any fast-moving news story, that is going to be the case. And so the speed at which we publish has increased, but we need to make sure we are still giving it the due, the important due level of scrutiny uh, that underpins what we do. Your tagline is academic rigour, journalistic flair. So what does that mean in practice? That's the heart of the model, that uh, Andrew's description of an academic and a journalist sitting alongside each other, both working on a story. The academic brings the depth of knowledge. As I say, you can only write for the conversation if you are an expert in, you have conducted research in the subject you're writing about. But often when something is your career, you're the subject of you know, your professional life, you get can get a little bit lost in the weeds. And so the academic brings the rigour. They know this subject. The journalist brings the flair. They will go through and talk about it's the third paragraph down. That's the most interesting thing. I sat in on a, a training session that one of our environment editors was was delivering, and an academic was talking about their research uh, monitoring the health of whale popula- populations around the world. And as he was talking, he had some throwaway line about, well, then we use satellite imagery to weigh this whale. And well, the environment editor said, wait a minute. You can weigh a whale using satellite images. And he said, oh, yeah, no, that's that's how we do it. And suddenly that's the story. And it's fascinating because I certainly didn't realise that's how you did it. But actually, this is how working scientists use the information available to monitor the, the health of endangered species. And so the journalistic flair is the skill to spot that and... That's not the only thing the story will talk about, but that's the newsy hook that will make you click the link and say, yeah, how do they do that? So with budget constraints on traditional newsrooms, are you a new source of credible news? Yes, that's the short answer. It's true that that news organisations around the world are under enormous financial pressure, as I said earlier on, with declining subscription revenue, digital revenues for all but the very top titles, not making up that shortfall, display ads, other ad revenue falling. And many news organisations now having to uh, really engage with their readers and encourage them to, to pay to support them. The conversation is an important contribution to the news industry. And that's both as a supplier of news to other newsrooms, but also as a direct place for people to get their their news from. Is the conversation the only place you should come from your news? Absolutely not. We do certain things really, really well, but we also recognise that when there is breaking news, something up to the minute, 
our process of identifying an academic who could write about it, getting them to write about it, the story being edited and published. In the best circumstances, that process takes a few hours. So I wouldn't come to us for breaking news, but to understand the news later that day, the following morning, I hope that we would be a a valuable part of of people's media diets. The information we provide to other news organisations then helps them make up for the shortfalls that they might have, that if they no longer have a science desk, a health desk, they can take our content to, to fill in the gaps in their own editorial offer. Now, we both have something in common, and that's IBM. You started there as a consultant and then worked for Deloitte and ended up at the BBC and Associated Press. Sounds like a fascinating career journey. Where did you start and how did you end up with the conversation? It, it has been an interesting journey. Yes, I, I worked for IBM before I went to university uh, under something that uh, I think no longer exists, but at the time uh, was called the pre-university scheme and took 60 undergraduates-to-be from across the UK and put them in to offices across the IBM offices in the, in the UK, from down in Portsmouth to up in Greenock. I was based in in Basingstoke, people in the the research hub in in Hursley outside Winchester. And it was a fascinating experience. This was after Lou Gerstner had sort of turned the ship in the the 90s as the uh, people's demand for computers had evolved away from IBM and IBM-compatible machines and selling servers that looked like phone boxes and recognising services as an increasingly important way with for how businesses would engage with would engage with technology that uh, obviously with the the focus of this podcast being on how you can take action to to shape that future it was run by someone called Ian Nussie who was someone that he used to describe himself as a as a futurist or a futurologist looking across the organization trying to spot the trends that would be driving revenue for IBM in 10 or 20 years time. Uh, A good friend of mine worked in something that was called the Pervasive Technology Unit, which had as one of its flagship um, demonstrations, a webcam trained at a blind, and you could press a button on a website and the blind would open. And in 1999, that felt like space age. I mean, now obviously you have uh, smart assistants who can do all those things for you, but in '99 that was that was remarkable. I'm not a a technologist myself; I'm not a, a programmer. Uh, and so, after university, I went into consulting, worked across a range of interests, but my heart was always in in media. So I moved initially to a children's TV production company, which uh, made Bob the Builder, Barney, Pingu, and so on, uh, which was fascinating, building Excel models, forecasting future revenue on Bob Series 7. Uh, and then from there to the BBC during a uh, fairly turbulent time in its its life. And then the Associated Press, where I was for four years looking after after global strategy. I came to the conversation because I'd spent a lot of my time in very large organisations. IBM, Deloitte, BBC have tens of thousands of people. And you, know, you are ultimately a small cog in a, in a very big machine. And I wanted to be somewhere where I could really deliver change myself. And so coming in as the, the chief executive and taking the conversation from a, a startup that had proved that this slightly improbable model 
could work. And then scaling that and saying, okay, we are now a sustainable business that will be here for the uh, for the long term is is something that I've been I've been really proud uh, to to work with my colleagues on. What's next for the conversation, and how do you drive innovation? That is a a really good question. Uh, I met with my colleagues from um, France and Spain, the editions of the conversation operate there yesterday, to talk about how we might be able to do more across Europe. I say we we currently publish in uh, English, French and Spanish, but I hope that in the next year or so we'll be publishing in German potentially Welsh as well, and commissioning from many, many more institutions from across Europe. I would like to grow readership that while I'm heartened that uh, the the raw numbers of, of people reading our content is increasing every month, we're not a household name. As a small charity, we don't have a huge amount of money to spend on marketing, but I would really like to see more people valuing what we do and coming to read the content on site, that it's great if they encounter the story in the independent, in the mail, but ultimately I'd like to build that relationship with, with readers. So we'll be doing more of that. We'll be expanding our podcasts and our newsletters further. So really focusing on particular audiences and, and developing a deeper relationship with them. So how important is a site like The Conversation in the middle of an information war like the one being waged at the moment in Russia and Ukraine? Sites like The Conversation are invaluable. We are not the only place people should come for information, but we can put a lot of things in context. There's a lot of even accidental misinformation that can flow around during a during a time of war. And people talking about the creation of modern Europe will often stretch certain elements of the truth to fit into the particular narrative that they're trying to tell. Sites like The Conversation, who provide more explanatory journalism, who can spend more time unpacking a particular story, uh, particular looking into a particular question, are really important. Places like Tortoise, with you know, its described slow journalism, I think is serving a similar sort of need, although with a different business model. So the £64 million pound dollar euro question what is the future of journalism in the age of misinformation i think it has to be a a flight to to quality that journalism is hard journalism is expensive we have seen over the last 20 years the amount of money available to news organizations to spend declining and so it is vital that we have experiments innovations like the conversation are we going to solve the issue on our own absolutely not but almost at a sector level the conversation being there alongside those traditional news organizations like the new york times the bbc who are doing so much and having to evolve their own operating models to respond to these challenges. Working together, we then have the power to shape how news platforms use news and how they respond to misinformation on site so that rather than waiting for people to report it, they need to be proactively pushing trusted, credible content before the misinformation has a chance to get any uh, grip. So before we finish, I want to run you through a quick fire round, some quick questions to learn a little bit more about you. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Window or aisle? Aisle. Online or in the room? In the room. Your biggest hope for 2022? I had uh, a daughter at the end of last year, and so I uh, I hope my uh, my wife is able to uh, return to work and uh, the transition to her being in daycare goes well. The app you use most on your phone? These days, probably Twitter, but in the before times, CityMapper. 
the one thing you won't be doing again post-pandemic? Socialising with friends on Zoom. What are you reading at the moment? I'm currently reading uh, Tim Marshall's Prisoners of Geography, which someone had recommended as a, as a way of understanding some of the, the factors driving what's going on in, in Ukraine. Uh, and I'm also reading The Hobbit to my son. How do you want to be remembered? For hosting good parties. It's a great answer. A unique one. I haven't had that one before. So as this is the Actionable Futures podcast, what three actionable things should our audience do today when it comes to combating misinformation? The first thing they should do is subscribe to one of the Conversations newsletters, conversation.com. The second thing they should do is check their sources. And so that's before you retweet. Think, where has this person got that information from? Are they a journalist? Have I heard of this news publisher before? Check your sources. Uh, and the final thing is push back against misinformation when you see it, that individuals aren't going to be Russian troll farms, but when your uncle around the Sunday lunch said something that you know isn't true, you need to push back. And by making them think, oh, maybe I should have checked that a little bit harder, you can start to make a difference. So how can people find out more about you and your work? They can visit theconversation.com. My contact details are there. That uh, We are built on partnerships, so I'd be very happy that if any of your your listeners wanted or saw an opportunity to work with The Conversation to get in touch with me. Chris, a fascinating discussion. I'm so glad I uncovered The Conversation. I'll be looking at it more and more in the future. And thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Good to speak to you. Thank you for listening to the Actionable Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at actionablefuturist.com. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops delivered in person or virtually at actionablefuturist.com. Until next time, this has been the Actionable Futurist Podcast.